Welcome to the Talk Marketing Analysis for Life Sciences podcast with Covalent Bonds. I'm your host, Laura Brown, and I am Chief Effectiveness Officer here at Covalent Bonds HQ. In this podcast, we explore marketing and media analysis for life sciences, touching on topics from marketing data to our guests' biggest marketing failures and successes, because it is in learning from others that the magic happens. Today, I'm interviewing my business partner at Covalent Bonds, Olga Torres. Olga is Chief Optimization Officer here, which means she's responsible for making things work and also for handling all of the data. Olga started her career at the bench before moving into a range of sales and marketing roles at life sciences companies. Her career path is similar to many marketers in the scientific community. I therefore look forward to hearing her perspective on all things data and life science marketing. Hi, Olga. Thanks so much for coming today. Oh, thank you for having me. So for the purposes of our listeners who might not know, can you give a bit of an overview to covalent bonds and your role in data using the data in covalent bonds? Sure. Covalent bonds does marketing measurement for life science companies. And what that means is that we focus a lot on the data and how to best acquire marketing data and understand how people behave with the site, how they interact, uh, what personas they have, you know, how can we capture things better? How can we reach people better? And what impact any particular activity might have so that then we can optimize, we can, or recommend optimizations for the program that target these, you know, usually scientists in life science. Thank you. You mentioned the website earlier. Is it only for um, online activities or can you do it for all marketing activities? No, I think that's honestly one of my favorite little bits about how we're so different is that we managed to do it both for online and offline because our ability to bring in that strategy that handles both pieces and an overall campaign. And then my team tends to work on how we can did make, manifest those things digitally and change offline things into numbers that we can measure. That is one of the ways we really stand apart. Okay, so what do you mean by marketing data? Well, when we're talking about data, you know, the easiest thing to think about first is the data sources, you know, whether it's, you know, like I said, the website or social or email campaigns, CRM, marketing automation. But there's also other things that would include surveys, uh, whether they're quick little questions or really extensive, highly quantitative and statistical surveys that are being done for market research. There's also media measurement, which looks a lot at share of voice and uh, other components that really help understand the value of the brand and where the brand, how brand interacts with people. For the purposes of everyone listening in, tell us a little bit about your role as CEO at Covalent Bonds. As COO, I really work, it's a mix of planning and thinking about processes as well as jumping in and firefighting and having probably too much fun with R&D and thinking about different ways that we can approach processes or bring in technologies and, and think about how things can be put together. So it's really fun. (laughs) Cool. 
Okay, so if the problems and R&D don't intersect, I'm guessing our listeners would be very interested in hearing the kind of problems that your clients are facing. So what kind of things would you come up against and how would you deploy the team to sort of approach those? My job in helping our team is to kind of unpick that piece and really dig into where is the actual core, where is the actual problem, and how do we resolve it? And that could be a range of anything to looking at how we connect the data, looking at the workflow, or making sure that if there's a specific new goal, sometimes a client will call and say like, oh, can I also find out this information? And then it's like, well, okay, where do we add that into the process without breaking any? Cool. Thank you. So it sounds like you have a very busy day. So what are the three most important elements of your day-to-day role? That would definitely be offering, you know, support to the team, what I call investigative firefighting, you know, and seeing if there's something that needs an immediate solution, how do we solve it? And going to the gym. I think that my most productive days at work include some time at the gym where I get to like just think about things separately and plan and get away from the computer and a lot of ideas start flowing. How we can... Headspace is so important, especially when you're handling so much data. Definitely. And you, you can very easily forget to detach. Yeah, exactly. So how did you get into scientific marketing? Well, I started, as you said in the intro, I started at the bench and then was a little probably too talkative for the bench and moved into the sales side and technical sales and then kept learning little pieces, I think, of operations along the way. And I do like to volunteer with professional organizations. And that started to get me into marketing because I was able to take the sales kind of conversation that I was having and communicate it through an email or through a tweet or a LinkedIn post. And, you know, it just kind of kept growing. And then I found out I could see the data of how that worked, of how each event worked, of when there were huge peaks. And I was like, oh, this is just like science. Because, you know, when I was doing HPLC, I was always looking for nice, clean peaks. So then I got super investigative. And I was like, what was the cause of the peaks? What, how did that evolve? How can we do that again? What can we do instead? You know, and, and really digging into the data. And I think it took probably about a year before I realized I was in marketing. So do you have any formal marketing training? Not formal, but I am like an avid learner of all the things online. So I am involved with developers forums. I watch developer conferences, the Google Developer Conference, the Google Marketing Conference, you know, and and pick up each piece. And to me, it's been very helpful because it's at the pace at which I I need the information or I, Mm -hmm. I can learn. And it's also extremely relevant to what's going on right now. What are the the best case practices? How do we use that? And then think of each little piece and put all the Legos together. Mm-hmm. I think your background is very typical of a lot of marketers in our industry, in the scientific industry. They have moved up through from the bench into a commercial role and found themselves in marketing. I think that's correct. Yeah, I think I, I've seen a little bit of both. I've seen the people that have found their way here and I've seen other people who 
have ended up in marketing roles, especially like product managers that, that don't understand all the other pieces. And I feel a lot of the times, like it's hard to say you're in marketing. Like if I go to a dinner party, I'm like, I'm in marketing, but I'm in this tiny little sliver. And this is how it impacts the rest of marketing, which impacts the rest of the business, you know, because people think of it in a very marketing in a very specific way. You're saying that people outside of our industry have a different definition of marketing from people within the scientific world. Did I understand that correctly? No, I think that people in general think about marketing as ads, as visual creative. And there's a very important aspect of marketing that is very visual and ads and social. But there's this whole other world in the data and how that relates. I don't think that in that dinner party scenario, when I say that I'm in marketing, I think the perception is, you know, website visuals and ads and, you know, very graphic elements. And I don't think they think about the data and the analysis and the optimization components. And I think that's throughout all industries. You know, it's just what you think of when you hear the word marketing. Now, with, if you talk to a marketer and you hear the word marketing, they're probably, they're going to ask you, are you working on campaigns? Do you do social? Do you do the website? Do you do, you know, whatever. And now data is just becoming a bigger and bigger part of that conversation. And so it's, if I end up talking to another data-led marketer, we geek out and we have fun. So do you find that scientists typically are more at the data-led marketing end or are they still at the marketing communications traditional marketing approach end? Scientists in general have a lot of difficulty with both ends. They don't know where to find the data to look at it. But if you could present them the data, they understand it. On the communication side, things are are very rigid. You know, they're very black and white. This is what I do. This is, you know, like they're not about benefits. They're not about problems. They're not, you know, so you end up teasing a lot of that out of people is like, well, why would somebody need this? Why do they care about this? You know, and all these emotions. I think that when you're talking to a scientist, leading a company, and I've worked with a lot of these, the facts are what they are. They think the facts are enough. And the facts are important, but it's not why people buy. And people's buying behavior has more, they're more attracted to that emotional element of how this helps me or why, you know, why should they care and those kinds of things. So when things are really from the data, we know that when things are very factual and there's no advantages or benefits or differentiators, the person viewing the page spends less time and they move on very quickly and they don't really go that far into the funnel. So would you say that scientists running companies are much more skeptical about marketing because they're so focused on the sale? I think they're only skeptical about it until they see the data. I think they know enough to know marketing is important, but they don't really understand it. When you present marketing in in terms of data to a scientist, they're like, okay, I can see it here. There's a chart. The numbers are going, or there's a timeline. 
and this is how things are trending. So it sounds like that a part of your role and a large part of your role is translating marketing into a language that scientific CEOs and CFOs will understand to be able to quantify it. Do you say that's accurate? I would say that's really accurate. I grew up in a bilingual household and that has meant that I'm always in the middle of thinking that it could mean one thing in one language or another thing in another language and being able to translate back and forth between family members. Um, and I, when I got into science, and particularly when I got into marketing, there was a lot of realization that this means something to chemists. This means something to biologists. This means something, you know, so being able to understand, it really is translation. It is being able to take this data and translate it in a lot of different ways so that it means something to someone. And when I think about that, I really think that about being able to understand or grow up in this bilingual household helped to that. Whether it's data and scientists, JavaScript and HTML, they're all like, a, I have all of these languages that are available. So this podcast is actually meant to be about three big questions in marketing and we've just been <laughs> chatting. So let's move on quite quickly to the first one. What has been your biggest marketing failure? My failure, I still kick myself for. I still have like a, a very like emotional frustration that I, that I did it. <laughs> I feel like my failures hang over my head, but kind of in a good way to you know, keep you on your toes. You learn a lot from them. Mm-hmm. The biggest one that I had was I was using Tag Manager and I was trying to train people how to use it at the same time as setting it up. And I was trying to show them in, in the particular instance, I was trying to show them how to troubleshoot a problem. And I changed one of the modes on a tag and I never set it back to normal mode in everything I forgot. And it ended up causing a lot of false signals and polluted the data. And it haunts me. But I say that I feel like paranoia can drive some really great things. And it really completely changed the way we set up Tag Manager and how we train people on Tag Manager. And luckily, there's some systems that evolved within Tag Manager too that will help prevent those things from happening. I think that was probably the biggest one. Well, I think learning from your mistakes is such an important thing. And using that methodology in a business is just so critical for driving things forward. Like you said, you've now developed a service that, you know, and systems that ensure that things like that don't happen again and they can't. And that's such a huge learning. But for the benefits of our listeners, can you just explain a little bit about Tag Manager, what it is and what it does? Sure. Tag Manager is one of the the Google accessory platforms, I guess you could say, like analytics, there's AdWords. There's a bunch of other ones that can really help your business. Tag Manager allows you to place tags on the site. And I use it at very specific behavioral tags. So if there's some kind of behavior somebody's looking for as a result of a campaign, we want to see you know, that they read this page. Or for me, I really like to know if people read all the way to the bottom of a page because a page view on its own doesn't tell you that. And there's some tags that are kind of preset up or you can even custom code tags to tell you about these behaviors on a site. 
I do warn people every time because they, they ask me, you know, should they use Tag Manager? And it's not for the novice. It is, is something that you really have to think about. Again, my story can illustrate why, because you don't want to pollute the data. You have to know where you want to send the data. If you spend some time and learn it, it's an amazing tool, but it's not something to kind of play around with. What has been your biggest marketing success? Earlier this year, we did a persona project that looked at how to segment this instrumentation company's audience in a very novel way. And we looked at how the audience thought, how they felt, and how they behaved. And we used those areas to create the personas and understand them for the purposes of the sales and marketing team. And so we really had three large sets of data that we got to overlay against each other. The survey data had this huge cluster analysis and a lot of statistical analyses to answer a survey. We had a, on the emotional side, phone interviews, and we did a sentiment analysis on all of the transcripts of interviews. And then we looked at the, on the behavioral side, all of the analytics available from every platform. So whether it was like the website, AdWords, social. And in this particular case, there were five different websites, which was an additional challenge. But, but the thing was, is when it came down to it and we got together with our sets of data, we saw things immediately that crossed over. We saw things that confirmed or added more color to what we had already seen on our set. So when you brought them together, you had a really good picture of, okay, these are the demographics, but this is who they are as a buyer. This is who, how they behave. This is how much time you have to get their attention. These are the things they care about. And of those things in this case that they cared about were things we weren't even looking for. And the client ended up saying, you know, there's been these conversations we've had internally debating for like a year and you gave us the answers and we never told you the questions. And so it was, it was really amazing. It was very detailed, but for the data junkies involved, it was a lot of fun. So that sounds like an interesting, really interesting project, but how does it fit in with the mission of Covalent Bonds? Because I know that Obviously, the company is focused on marketing and media measurement. So how does that kind of project fit into your service offering? Oh, yeah, I can understand why, where it might seem separate, but it's really important in setting everything up. Google, in their best practices, is talking a lot about audiences now. And, you know, audiences is their word for persona. But if you have basically a digital fingerprint of this persona, and you have specific messaging for your persona, uh, persona A, let's say, versus B or C, then you can see how well you're doing with each group because each group had different things that were important to them. So just so I understand, so you're saying that you took a baseline measurement from the, this audience then? It's a baseline measurement and then a little bit more. I think that you have to think of it more as a fingerprint. Because it's a way that we can watch a group of people uh, as opposed to 
sales of an instrument or a division. It's really about the people. Just to clarify, so you're talk- when you're talking about the people, you're not tracking an individual person. You're talking about a change in people's behavior, right? So once you have this defined persona, you can define it in the data and you can measure how well you're doing with each persona per campaign or per channel, per anything, per topic. You know, all of, all of these things now you can take and filter all of your data by one group, by one message, by, you know, like against each group. And that's really valuable because you want to be spending your efforts on the things that work. And while the things that work for person A may not work for person B, you need to know there's not just one person. <laughs> there's, and when I say person, it's, it's audience, it's a group of people, but there's not one group of people that you're talking to and you're trying to reach. So it's important not to have one message. You need to know that the message for group A, for persona A, is working and not pollute that with persona B. Is that message working? Is that, are those efforts working? I'm glad that you qualified that you were talking about a group of people. So the persona A versus one person, because as soon as you started that, I started getting nervous about GDPR, which I know that all of our listeners are going to be freaking out about are going, oh my gosh. So when you're talking about groups, and it's, I'm assuming, anonymous? Oh, 100%. Everything we do on the marketing side is anonymous. We, we try to keep everything to an ID so that it, we don't even know who anyone is. And all of our data in our systems is anonymous. There's a huge benefit to being able to analyze it like that. You know, there's GDPR, but there's also no bias. And scientifically, the data is the data, I would just need to know the number of people that this worked for. So we use ID numbers most of the time and when, it, when it is one person. Cool. Thank you. So moving on to our last question, which we're asking all of our interviewees. If you could ask your peers one question to learn from their experience, what would it be? What are the individual elements important to brand measurement at a enterprise level. So why is that important question for you? Mostly because I don't come from the traditional marketing background and I do know that it's important to measure the brand. And I know that there's sentiment and there's ROI and there's, you know, there's all these different individual measurement pieces, but I'd be curious to know how they structure that. Like how do they weight those things? So If you were to save money in one area, you know, we were to, let's say you have the data, you can optimize it. We know this isn't working. We can take this budget. Do you allocate it somewhere else or do you leave it in the coffee tin? It's not about where people are spending money, but let's say, I mean, there's been plenty of situations where we're like, you know, take the data and say, okay, instead of doing this thing that cost a thousand dollars, which is not providing the results, you know, you should do more of something else. When you decide to cut a project because it's not giving you the effectiveness or impact that you desire, the budget that's associated with that, where does it go? Does it go to another project? Does it go to the 
theoretical savings account. Nice. And what would be a really interesting question as well is how do they actually define whether it was something that should be cut in the first place? Right. I think it's tricky because I can't get data on it. You know, (laughs) I, I don't have that insight into the internal workings of different companies to say, okay, this is what this individual, and it is an individual person thing, but this is not a behavior I can track based on the data that I have. And and it's intriguing to me. Fab. That is a really good question. I like that. (laughs) (laughs) Because the assumption that we make is that you would take that money and you'd use it somewhere else. That at the end of the year, you'd spent a hundred thousand in marketing regardless. Well, that's the thing. They never want to have money left over because it would get taken out of next year's budget. <laughs> so, do they? Or do yeah. they not? You know, like if you're talking about sometimes when you're hey, get that seat at the exact table, let's say marketing gets that seat at the table, well, being able to cut, you know, like to increase the return on investment, I mean, that's the core question. One of the ways to do that. But I love the fact that you challenged me then as well, because I know that one of the things that drives you in your role is making sure that nobody makes a decision on an assumption, not a fact, and without that data. And you just challenged me based on something that's like a law, if you know what I mean, in our industry that everybody has to spend all their budget at the end of the year. I don't have the data to know that. I just think that that's the case because I heard it once. So I love that. What I love about us is that whole, like, we're not going to do anything on assumptions. Although it can be frustrating sometimes because you want to just jump ahead. But there's been countless times with as much data as we look at that we've been all proven wrong in one way or another when we looked at the numbers. And the numbers are what the numbers are. Yeah, I like that. Cool. Well, thank you so much. That was really useful. Really good chat. Thank you. And I hope that our listeners also found it helpful. So thank you very much. You're welcome. Have a great day. And you.